Welcome, everybody. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. Way back in 1996, when the Long Now Foundation was started, one of the main driving factors that was, that was being talked about was the, the kind of next quarter economics of all companies. And, and you can imagine back then, there was the time where um, kind of speed was being fetishized above all else, and it wasn't until the bubble burst that people started thinking a little bit differently about that. But I thought what was really interesting is that when uh, Jeff Bezos launched uh, Amazon in 1997 as a public company, he, he published a letter alongside the, um, the offering, and it was entitled, It's All About the Long Term. And I think what's interesting is what he was saying then is that if everything you do is work on a three-year time horizon, then you're competing against a lot of people. But if you're willing to invest on a seven-year time horizon, you're now competing against a fraction of those people, because very few companies actually do that. So just by lengthening the time horizon, you engage in endeavors that you could never otherwise do. And that's really what, uh, after Eric had been spent, had spent a lot of time in a way, kind of shortening the, the, the development cycles of companies. But as he did that, he saw that where the value was going on was not really getting pushed further out. And at the very end of, of this book, which there's pre-signed copies out in the lobby, this was really the idea that he ended with, with which was the long-term stock exchange. And so tonight, he and I are going to talk about that. Please, Eric. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Don't trip on the fire. <laughs> that should have been the special introduction. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Wow. Um, yeah, so I think I'd love to just start with that. I mean, you, you kind of, you finished this book that was the Lean Startup, and it was, so much of it is about how to make your company get to good ideas faster. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but at the very end of it, you say, you know, what we really need to do is create a, a system of a stock exchange that, that is more about value and less about speed, in a way. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting paradox in a corporate setting that, that took me by surprise. As you know, thanks to the book, I got to see this up close and personal in so many different kinds of companies that I always assumed, you know, as a civilian, that the shorter the accountability time horizon, the faster everything would go. So if companies are like rigorously operating by the quarter, then they, they must be really fast because you can't get very much done in three months, so you better, better go fast. But actually, it's an inverse correlation. The companies that actually operate on very rapid product development cycles, the ones that are more scientific, more iterative in their approach, and this is true of Amazon, it's true of, you know, if you study like Toyota production system, are the ones that have that long-term philosophy that is the support layer that people need to do this kind of more scientific type of inquiry, where each experiment needs to happen quickly so that we get to the overall thesis over the long-term, like before we're all dead. <laughs> and 
I couldn't figure out why. It was like a paradox. It was very evident. If you, I mean, how many of you have ever talked to a middle manager at a public company ever? Uh, if you have, then you've already heard them moan and groan about how awful it is to be under this quarterly pressure and all the bad stuff. And we'll get to that, I'm sure. But eventually, I realized what was going on is that if you're a quarterly cadence-type company, there's actually two kinds of projects that you have to run from time to time. There are projects which can reasonably be completed in one quarter. And for that, you have this extremely rigorous uh, forecasting and accountability system, and you know who's doing a good job and not. That's category one projects. And then you have the other category, which I just call other. Then there's other projects that don't work. So if you're like, I want to do something over the course of one year, or God forbid, three years, or I mean, for, for Jeff, like for seven years, it's like, well, that better go in the other bucket. And so how is the other bucket adjudicated? No one knows. There's no system or rigor to that bucket. It's just like, well, that's just politics. If I can unlock some money, I can get this project. And of course, middle managers since time immemorial have figured out that if you can uh, get yourself promoted to a different job before the expected launch date of the thing that you're working on, <laughs> you can never fail. And it's funny because you know. <laughs> none, none of you, I understand, would ever pull this trick, but you know this is going on in corporations. When I give talks about Lean Startup in corporate context and I start talking about that, everyone looks around to be like, is it okay to laugh at this joke? <laughs> because we all know this is going on. There are, in fact, executives today who have played that trick their whole career and have never launched anything. And actually, from an ROI point of view, they're being very rational. It's probably the best way to be promoted because reality will never impinge on the story that you tell about what a great visionary person you are. We do that a little bit in Silicon Valley, too. So, so yeah, so like that paradox really surprised me in the, in the research, even leading up to, to writing The Lean Startup, and then as I've gotten to see it up close, it's been, it's been really shocking. And it doesn't really make sense. This is like the main takeaway for me. We've gotten used to this. Just everyone's like, well, yeah, you have to hold people accountable. Yeah, it should be on a court. Like, we just, we've gotten used to it. So if you ask, why does it matter that a sale was completed on December 31st versus January 1st? Is that, is that important in any way to the long-term health of the corporation? Most people would say, yeah. You, you made the deadline. It helped the numbers for the quarter. But if you really like, think about it, it like, doesn't make any sense at all. When did this become an idea that we accepted? And then when we started to build people's incentive systems to drive certain outcomes, like basically running the corporation for the sake of the report, then it's just like in sports or any other situation where like now people, like the company's being run for the report, the report is not useful anymore. It was really useful when it was a random sample of like what's happening in the corporation, doing that four times a year, sure, we get a sample at some frequency, why not? Uh, but now that we're running corporations to produce beautiful reports, then A, the reports are not accurate anymore. No, no investors actually really believe the information in these reports anymore. But also, we're having thousands of people, tens of thousands of people contort their lives to produce these outcomes in these reports. Why? And that, because I came at this from the outside. I'm just a computer software programmer, you know. Uh, and I, you know, I became this public figure through the writing of this book, but I didn't, I just never imagined it would lead to anything remotely like this. So I was in these I've been in these boardrooms and in factory floors and in, with middle managers of every level all up and down the stack, companies that are five years old and 100 years old and longer, we were talking about, and governments and agencies. And, and everywhere you go, this is just the accepted reality. And if you ask people, what are the top problems afflicting your organization, people will vent to you about this as like the most destructive problem. 
And then if you say, why is it that way? What can we do about it? They give you this look. You should try it. It's really fun. They will give this look that's like you said, what should we do about gravity? You don't do anything about gravity. It just is. That's the way that it is. We've taken this whole system as if this is the way that it is like gravity. But it's not. We made this system, and we could make it any way that we see fit. And it, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this before, but it reminds me of that time um, when the music industry saw all of their profits falling through the floor. Yeah. And if you talk to any person at any level of the music industry, they all knew that selling music on plastic circles was not a viable yeah. Yeah. business model anymore. But it was like it was similar. It was like gravity. Like, well, what are we going to do? And, and you know what to do. <laughs> go, I mean, I, you walk the factory floor of any organization, you go to the lowest level, the people that work for a living, those people know what to do. Like a huge part of Lean Startup and the transformation of organizations has been simply harnessing the good ideas that are already there. Most organizations operate at tremendous expense, a creativity dampening field, which is designed to prevent anybody from having any creative ideas or expressing them. It's really expensive to operate this thing, but if you build a management system that is based on the eradication of variation and variance, then creativity and innovation are your enemy, not your ally. And so we, we do this work. We operate this, and I work with a lot of executives over the years, and I tell them, listen, this might sound like you're a criticism, so I get that you're pissed at me right now for telling you this information, but it's actually really good news. To get more creativity and more innovation, all the good things that you want in your organization, you don't have to go out and buy a bunch of startups. You don't have to go get more fancier creative. Just turn the dampening field off for like a day and see what happens. You right. might be surprised. And you know, that, that's a huge part of my work with organizations is to get them just to experiment with the possibility of unlocking the full human potential of the people that work there. And it's like a vast untapped resource. So the learned helplessness and this kind of like idea that this is just how it is and there's nothing you can do about it and yeah, we, the, the boss wants me to behave this way. Like there's this like really deeply fatalistic and pessimistic view of what is possible in the heart of business, especially where we're supposed to be the can-do, optimistic, change the world, you know, rah-rah. And I, I just think it's really, it's really bad. I mean, it reminds me of what, <laughs> of what uh, Steve Jobs had to do even with his own within oh his own God. company in order to finish the Mac, right? He had to like take his engineers, take them out of the building, put, rent a new yeah. space, fly a skull and crossbones flag <laughs> up the, literally up the flagpole and in order to, to get that creativity dampening field uh, kind of released in order to get him through the project. Yeah, yeah, middle managers are like ninja assassins. They will find you and kill you. <laughs> so you gotta, if you want to have innovation in your organization, you do have to solve that problem. But it is solvable. It's not like some dark art can be solved. The middle managers are human beings that are behaving rationally and responding to incentives like we all do. Right. And the, so let's, let's take a step back here. And um, can you tell us how stock exchanges work? Sure. Oh, yeah. How much, how much time do you have? <laughs> it's funny. You know, it wasn't that long ago that stock exchanges were not-for-profit entities, um, and now they're for-profit companies. Mine, too. So that's just how it is now. And, and when I was talking to regulators and policymakers about our exchange, I, I floated the idea that it should be a non-profit. It was like people were aghast at this old-fashioned idea, and I was told on no uncertain terms that that would not be permitted under any circumstances. Um, so, is it actually illegal, or do you, it just wasn't going to happen? 
there's not really a distinction between those two things <laughs> like you think there is. If you wanted to, like, it's a, it's, it's a very complicated thing, the way our regulatory apparatus works. And if you think about it, it make, it's actually a really difficult problem they're trying to solve, right? Technocratic governance requires independent agencies. Independent of what? Politics. Independent of you and me. Independent of the citizenry, citizenry's ability to exert their democratic influence over the process. So that's actually a really tough balancing act to have a democracy that is responsive to the will of the people, but also not responsive to the will of the people. And so well, what is legal and not legal uh, in such a system is quite, um, quite complicated. So yeah, I was, I was told that to, to not to pursue that. So stock exchanges, what are they? Why do we have them? Uh, in the old days, like, here's what people think stock exchanges are. In the old days, we wanted to have people be able to buy and sell the stocks of corporations so you could save for your retirement. And so uh, that was logistically extremely difficult, and it needed to happen in a specific place because stock certificates were actual pieces of paper in filing cabinets, and when you wanted to buy one, somebody had to go find the certificate for the buyer and move it to the... Like, they had to actually move it around. So like, even today, a lot of the way the system is built is around this, like, now all trading is electronic, but settlement still takes three business days to change a bit in a database from this person's name to that person's name. But it's, you know, the rules were built at a time when that was actually a difficult thing to do. So in those days, stock exchanges were physical places where brokers did these transactions on behalf of their clients. And you had to be a member of the exchange. And if you've ever seen pictures of the old New York Stock Exchange, they had the up, people who got to be upstairs and the people downstairs in the pit. And it was, all, it was uh, in economic terms, uh, uh, terms a... Um, what's it called, supply-side increasing returns and demand-side increasing returns, network effects type business. You want it to be the place where the most stocks were when you're trading, and companies wanted to be listed in the place where they would be the most brokers and therefore the most liquidity. So they were extremely rigorous um, uh, network-type marketplaces. And if you go, actually, if you ever get a chance to go visit the New York Stock Exchange, the marble building in New York, the, the servers are in New Jersey now. So there's no exchanging happening in that building anymore, but it's a beautiful museum. And they actually have the original agreement that they worked out that was called the Buttonwood Tree Agreement. If you read it closely, it's a price-fixing agreement <laughs> that fixed the commissions that all brokers would charge. And the idea that if you controlled the brokerage of these transactions, you had this enormous power such that you could set control prices and do all these other uh, things. Like that was a really breakthrough idea and it, it had its good things and its bad things. Anyway, that's what a stock exchange used to be. But everything I just said is really not relevant anymore because now trading is electronic. And when trading went electronic, I don't know how much history you really want here, but when no. trading went electronic, the uh, exchanges refused to pass the savings of electronic trading onto the public. So all of a sudden it got dramatically cheaper to run a stock exchange and prices stayed the same and the SEC didn't like that. And there was a lot of wrangling among the brokers and who got the fees and whatever and, and exchanges were converted to for-profit corporations. And then the SEC, in order to promote competition among the exchanges, introduced what's called the national market system. So although there are multiple stock exchanges in America, there is only one national market system. And the national market system means that every exchange trades every other exchange's stocks. So your image you have of demand side and supply side increasing returns all over. That's not true anymore. Uh, when companies list on any exchange, it's like a portal into this vast pool of liquidity that is shared across all American investors and brokers. Anyone can trade uh, in and out. 
uh, the servers are all in New Jersey. They're not just in New Jersey in general, but they're in a very specific location in New Jersey because the system was not designed by software engineers, but by lawyers. <laughs> and they decided, in all their wisdom, to use a physical network to determine the dissemination of information from point A to point B. And any of you who have taken an engineering class or remember that, that, that uh, software information does not move instantaneously, but rather at the speed of light. And therefore, whichever server is closest to the source of truth of an exchange gets the information slightly faster than the other servers. So literally every cage in the data center where these servers are is more expensive if you're closer to the center than if you're further away. And God forbid you're in Chicago or something, you know. It's by feet closer. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're talking about like literally the physical space that the cable has to, has to travel. And so um, the other issue is that the national market system also has this idea that if you're just a regular person and you want to buy stock on the exchange, uh, you can just say, I would like to have the best price. So I'll just take whatever the best price is right now. And if you make an order of that type, it has to be routed to whoever has the best price right now. Did anyone catch the problem? What does right now mean? Because you guys studied relativity, right? You understand. There is no such thing as right now. There's only uh, the information that I can perceive in my place as it travels a distance to me from the other places. And there are 15 places where this tra these transactions happen. 15 exchanges. 15 exchanges. Uh, and so people figured out that, wait a minute, if I have the fastest connection of anybody, I can like simultaneously place and cancel orders at these 15 venues faster than anybody else can and I can get an advantage from doing that. And other people said, well, I should compete with that guy who's got the faster connection. I'll get an even faster connection. And then we had this incredible arms race of people trying to get faster and faster and faster and faster connections. But uh, this arms race cannot go on indefinitely because the speed of light is fixed <laughs> and the competition is running asymptotically up against the wall of the speed of light. So it's a totally a you know, valueless, uh, zero-sum game, like, activity, this is what's driving most stock exchange transactions. There are now more transactions ever than in history. The volume that's traded on exchanges is, uh, is massive, and I haven't even gotten into the dark pools and the other affiliated transaction infrastructure because you only asked about exchanges. But anyway, that's, that's what they do. If you're a company who wants to list on an exchange, you might ask, what value do I get from all these millions and millions of transactions happening, driving my stock all over the place, not related to my fundamentals? And the answer is none. It's actively harmful to your ability to run your business. And then you'd be like, well, cool, I guess that's just how it is. Because <laughs> you have to be listed on a stock exchange, you want to be a public company. And until now, there have only ever been two companies that run the two places where companies can list, NYSE and NASDAQ. And there really hasn't been the creation of a new model for how companies could be listed since the creation of NASDAQ, which was in the 60s. So it's kind of a mess, because it's a short version. Right, and so I think you, I mean, you said a very interesting thing at the beginning when, uh, about how, what stock exchanges are, which is that yeah. they were a place to invest in companies where you believed in their product, yeah. and largely over your own whole lifetime. Like, it was for your retirement. Yeah, retirement. Was, people invest in retirement are the ultimate long-term so pe investors. People yeah. wanted something that was an investment that was a 20 to 50-year yeah. investment, Yet now, almost all trades are happening by milliseconds. And so who's, who's making the decisions at the millisecond level? Yeah, the average holding period for a lot of equity, uh, public equity uh, trading shops is 10 minutes. So nothing happens in 10 minutes to a multinational corporation. <laughs> nothing happens. Literally nothing happens. So uh, it's, it's a bit of a mess. And at the speed that these transactions are being made, um, uh, humans can no longer participate as brokers. 
So there really aren't human stockbrokers anymore in the way that we previously would have understood. We now have algorithms that act on behalf of brokers. And the trend in investing is towards what's called passive investing. I'm sure you all know. Most people are putting their money into passively held funds that just buy the whole market or an entire index. But then there's this question of which index should you use? And there's now a proliferation of index providers that weight the stocks slightly differently or have different criteria for inclusion or exclusion. And it's like, this is the new active investing is which index you follow. But indexing only works if somebody is setting the price that we all follow. I mean, I list my money's in passive investments too. We're all, we're all in passive investments, that's the trend. But we're free riding off the price discovery of a shrinking percentage of the market because more and more and more dollars are moving into passive investing and the price discovery that's happening in the active part of the market is being done by computers that are trying to get a trading edge against the other computers that are trying to trade. And at some point, you gotta ask, if this trend continues and all humans have their money in passive funds, you see where this is going? A few people are laughing already. And, and, a, and a dwindling percentage are in these active funds that are all being run by computers. Who is actually setting the price and is that setting of the price, be, will it be in any way related to the fundamental activity of the company? So is it possible that the, you could eventually lead, lead to a world where there would be no correlation whatsoever between the price that a stock trades at any given time and the underlying fundamental value of the company? And I don't really know what the plan is. If, like, maybe that won't happen for some reason, but all the trends are pointing in that direction, and therefore, we're all opting out. Have you noticed? the total number of companies that are listed on public exchanges in the United States is shrinking. It's down it's 50%. 50% in the last 20 years. This is the most remarkable graph in capitalism, I think, because a lot's happened in the last 20 years, you guys have noticed. You remember? We've had booms and busts, and we, we've seen it all here, right? The graph is just straight down. You cannot see the dot-com bubble on this graph. You cannot see the Great Recession on this graph. It's just every year attrition of the total number of companies from about 10,000 to about 5,000 and there's no, has no sign of abating. Uh, we, it only gets offset because sometimes we get international listings, but if you look at American companies, it's, it's straight to the floor. So the next generation of companies that in any other era would be public companies have just opted out of the system and said, well, why would we want to be listed on this crazy casino? What do we get out of it? And it used, the answer used to be you could raise large amounts of money if you did this, but now you can raise plenty of money while you're private. So what do you need to do why, why, why really be public? Now, I think there are benefits, but in order for companies to reap the benefits, we have to deal now with the kind of layering protections around them from all this other noise, uh, noise and nonsense. And as a result, the public is getting screwed. None of us, except those of us who are accredited investors, but most of the public is not allowed by law to invest in growth companies. And then economists have started to notice something they call secular stagnation which is that there's not a lot of growth happening in the public markets and in people's retirement savings. And this is like a big conundrum of why is this happening. But one of the reasons it's happening is because the growth companies are just are opting out of being in your portfolio and they're still able to raise plenty of money from oligarchs and sovereign wealth funds and all kinds of folks. So like, they're doing okay. And people talk about this like it's a real act of greed on behalf of these startup founders, you know, depriving the public of the whatever. But think how crazy this has become. In a lot of cases, like if you have a multi-billion dollar private company, you're the founder of, you own a significant percentage of it. So you stand to make hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars in some cases, personally, of liquid net worth from taking your company public and you're putting it off. Who among us would have the courage, the strength 
to put it off. And could we call that an act of greed? You know, it's something else. And as a result, if we don't fix this problem, the backlash that we're starting to get the taste of now is going to get dramatically worse. Because people out, I talk to a lot of people in the valley now who are like, people keep saying we've been like left out, left behind. What are they talking about? Well, why are they so mad? But they've been literally left, like they are not allowed to invest in our companies anymore. They've like fundamentally broken the connection between investment in innovation and R&D in the future and the broad public's desire uh, to reap the benefits of disruption. It's like the creative destruction of the economy that we laud as capitalists, you know, that comes with costs. And one of the ways those costs get offset is the public benefits from the economic activity that we generate. And when you talk to founders and people who lived through the earlier cycles of, of entrepreneurship in this country, and you know, Steve Case told me the story about uh, founding AOL. He took AOL public, and I can't remember now, I think AOL raised, does remember the number? I think $75 million when it went public. <laughs> yeah, people who are in the business are laughing. Uh, IPOs used to be really small. You used to do them very early. Amazon, I think, went public after three years of operation. Um, now, he said, people still, to this day, stop him on the street and say, thank you for putting my kids through college. Because if you had the fortitude, now you would have had some courage to do this. You had the fortitude to buy AOL at the IPO and just hold it through that crazy run-up it had. Hopefully you sold at the top. Uh, that was an incredible amount of growth that was available to ordinary people. And no founders that I know in this generation have that experience. No one feels that way. It's not... It's only VCs and, uh, and a very few select investment funds who are reaping those rewards. And it's sad. And so now tell us how you're fixing it all. What is the long-term... No, oh, so, oh, did I... No, we're not. <laughs> Sorry, no, I, I, there's no good news. <laughs> um, so the long-term stock exchange fundamentally is a different idea on stock exchanges. Yeah, so, so we had this idea, and I, I wrote about it in the book, so if you... If you grab your old battered copy of The Lean Startup and you turn to the very last page, you will see this idea listed, not as something that I should have to do, by the way, <laughs> something that somebody should do. That's by, just an aside, the very best part of being an author is you get to have a whole chapter at the end where you just say that these are things that somebody should really get on doing. And you're done. You publish the book and it's like people do the things and the book became a phenomenon. And if you, if you study this book, Almost every ludicrous thing that I suggested that somebody should do, someone has actually tried in the intervening years. Some of them turned out to be great ideas, others, that's good. But people tried them with one exception. There's one idea that no one ever called me even one time to say, hey, is, a, is that one still available? Could I do the stock exchange one? Never got asked. And the idea is, is very polarizing. I remember, um, just an aside, I, in the manuscript for Lean Startup, I obviously did a lot of testing with customers for the Lean Startup. Otherwise, I would be accused of being a hypocrite. So I did a ton of, there were test readers and A-B tests and a lot of testing and experimentation. And one of the things we did, we sent it out, the near final manuscript to a number of test readers in the industry and kind of prominent people and asked them just, could you read it and give us your feedback? And one person wrote me back. He said, this book is great. I really like it with one exception. On page 399, you have this idea that is so stupid. <laughs> you, in one page, you flush away all of the credibility you have painstakingly built up over the previous however many hundreds of pages, and you must take it out. So it was kind of like that for a lot of years of people saying, this is, this is really a terrible idea. It was really polarizing. And what people don't realize now is that that's how people responded to Lean Startup in the early days. 
Now it's considered like accepted wisdom, and I'm, I'm very honored that people feel so good. Like, but now it's considered almost like, duh, obviously. And like the kids coming out of Stanford and, and uh, Berkeley doing startups now, they're like, can't believe that somebody had to write a book about it. Like it's so obvious. And then they're like, they can't believe that it, like, they're like, I thought it was written in the 80s or something. You know, what, you, I thought you'd be old. And I'm like, this, this, was, this book came out in 2011. It's not even 10 years old. Give me a break. And so, I mean, I, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that people have found the ideas and it's gone well. But this idea just has driven me crazy this whole time. I put it in the book. I was like, the fact that people reacted in that way, it was so polarizing. It's, that was a good sign to me. I was like, well, I'm on to something. This must be interesting. Let's see what happens. We put it out As into Paul the world. Paul says, if you're, if you're not getting flack, you're not over the target. Yeah. <laughs> I like that quote a lot. Uh, yeah, that's been the last 10 years of my life, 100%. And so the idea of the book was just like this. People who run companies say that if you ask them, like, why do you run quarter to quarter? Why do you distract your employees with this nonsense? Like, why do you use short-term compensation instruments that cause people to optimize for these local results instead of the global maximum? They say, well, that's what Wall Street wants. And, and it never made sense to me. I was like, wait, you're telling me that your own investors want your company to be worth less money because it's distracted from its fundamental mission of serving customers? And they're like, yeah. It's like, have you really asked them? They're like, I don't need to ask them. I have this ticker right here. It tells me in real time exactly what they want at all times. And I was like, that's, that's like asking, they've like, like a heart rate monitor of somebody. And I'm like, now I know exactly what they want at all times. Like, not, it's not exactly the same as understanding what they genuinely, truly want. So I was like, well, let me talk to some investors and understand. Because this, this can't be right. There must be a mistake. And of course, if you talk to people who are actually long-term investors, they're like, oh, you think I'm the source of short-termism? Screw you. Like, let me tell you about the short-term venture capitalists and these greedy founders in Silicon Valley. Like, managers calling me short-term? No, they're the ones who are short-term. And I would take that back to Doodle Villa, come back to Silicon Valley. Like, I heard that we're the ones who are short-term. Like, no, they're the ones who are short-term. We're going like this. Everyone thinks somebody else is the one that's causing the short-termism. And I had this epiphany. I was literally sitting in an airplane, flying to some speech about Lean Startup in 2010, reading a book about Jeff Bezos or probably Toyota Production System, something like that. The, the literature, by the way, the research on what creates outstanding companies, what really creates outstanding organizations, is unequivocally clear that having a philosophy of long-term thinking is a prerequisite for doing anything good. This shows up in the data. The research has been done. This is really good. And I was like, well, how can that be right? That the very thing that we know for sure is what's needed to build great companies is antithetical to the economic environment that we're taking companies into. You know, all of us in Silicon Valley, we're all trying to build public companies. We're all trying to sell our companies to public companies. We're all trying to make ourselves subject to this short-term pressure, which makes our companies less valuable, which means investors lose money. And I was like, I thought, we were, I thought this was a capitalist system. I thought we're for-profit companies. So how can this be right? So it never made sense to me, and I finally was like, aha. It just, I was literally on an airplane, and it came to me, and it said, what we need is a way for those companies which actually are long-term and those investors that are actually long-term to come together for mutual benefit. And we'll just build our own market with our own social contract that says we're going to actually run things for long term and we don't need to be activists about it. We don't need to, get, we don't need to run for president or anything. Just it's a for-profit company. These are all for-profit companies. Well, we will actually make more money if companies perform better, which I did not really expect to be controversial. It seemed like I thought I was making a QED, like straightforward deduction from the first principles of like what is capitalism to whatever. I didn't even know what a stock exchange was. See, I told you all about stock. I didn't know one thing about stock exchanges. I was just sitting, I was literally sitting there and being like, you know what I need? From first principles, I need an institution that can regulate the behavior of <laughs> investors 
and managers at the same time. So you invented a stock exchange on that airplane? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I know, we should make a stock exchange. And I just wrote it, I'm just, I was sitting there with my computer, with my manuscript right here, I'll have it open. I'll just throw it in here and see what happens, why not? I, if you had told me that day that this would be a controversial idea to anybody, I would have been shocked. And that was it, that was the idea. And, you know, pretty easy idea to say. Took three paragraphs in the book to write. Uh, it's not as easy of an idea to build. So I spent years just, I can't even describe this to you. Like this is the first thing in my life where I feel like I didn't, my subjective experience is I did not have this idea. My life was really good before I had this idea. I did, <laughs> I did not need this idea. I mean, honestly, my experience with this idea had me. It came to me this time, I wrote it in the thing and I was like, good, my work here is done. I wrote it, I'm an author now, not an entrepreneur. I wrote it in the book. I did my responsibility. I put it out into the world and now this problem will solve itself. Uh, and I can go on with my life. And this is one of these things that would not leave me alone. It would like keep me up at night. It would bother me all the time as I would go around in the world. And as the book became a phenomenon, and I got to go work with companies. I mean, you name an order of magnitude of companies from two founders in a garage up to the world's biggest multinationals. And every order of magnitude in between, I've had the chance to work with companies of that size. And I can now, I can pretty much win a bingo contest where you give me like sector or industry of the company and size. And I'll be like, oh yeah, here's an example. Oh yeah, here's an example. And now you can cross that with corporate function. I can tell you a story about people in that industry at that size and that function, how they were grappling with, with lean startup. So I got this really wide education. And yet everywhere you go, this is the problem people complain to you about. You can't, you can't avoid it. And once you've had this idea, I just like, oh, why is this such a bad idea? I don't understand. And so I started to talk to people about it. And I, I spent years just asking everyone I knew, Know any, know any investors? Know anybody that knows anything about Wall Street? What is Wall Street? How do you go there? Is it a place? Is it a, thing? What, what, is it a state of mind? What is it? How do I learn more about it? And I asked VCs, do, who, know any public market people? And people, I made, made intros and I would have these conversations. I'd be like, hi, I'm this kid from Silicon Valley and I've got this idea. Can you tell me all the reasons why it's terrible? And they'd be like, no problem. First, it violates the efficient market hypothesis. Second, you know, brokers will never go for it. Third, it's antisocial and it will lead to communism. Fourth, it will, <laughs> you name it, I swear to God, I have heard it over the years. And what was so, so and I was just, I was like delighted. I was like, great, one day someone will sit me down and explain to me why this is a bad idea and it will leave me alone. And the problem was people's reasons for why it was a bad idea made no sense. It wasn't that, like, they were not persuasive because they were almost all variations of like, kid, I am making so much money from things the way it is exactly right now, could you please go away and leave me alone? <laughs> People wouldn't say it exactly that way, but I started to learn. I was like, this doesn't make sense. Nobody can answer the question for me. Why, like, I was like, I had very simple questions. Why do we report quarterly? Why are companies allowed to give guidance? I don't understand. Meanwhile, I'm working with companies every day where at the first sign of trouble, if the guidance is off, if the quarter's not going well, the very first thing they do is cancel the innovation projects. You all live through this, you know what I'm talking about? We literally eat the seed corn as like a best practice. <laughs> why? So if you ask me, why do you do this? It doesn't make sense, like I, and no one could answer these questions. It wasn't like they had a really good answer and it just was like, I was like, I wanna make it a little bit better. It's like people would be like, I don't know, it's just how it is. It's just gravity, right? It's just, this is just how it is. And so I started to ask people, well, how do you build a new stock exchange? I have this idea for a new stock exchange. I'd like to build a new one. And when you, I told you that look people get on your face, try this one. <laughs> I, it's like you're saying, I'd like to make a new moon. <laughs> and it's like, it's a weird question. Cause like, hey, we already have one. It's fine. We don't need another one. But also that's not a human thing to do. <laughs> you don't make a moon. It's just, it's in the sky. It's a thing. And people have this image, the beautiful marble building with the bull. We're gonna have another bull. 
<laughs> what, what animal is yours going to have? I mean, I've, been, I've heard it all. So eventually, I got to a moment where I met a securities lawyer. And the other problem is most people who are experts in this topic make a lot of money from the status quo, so they won't help you. But I finally found someone who was like at the perfect borderline of just inside enough to know the answers to my questions, but not making so much money that he was not invested in reform. And I said to him, how do you make a new stock exchange? He said, oh, it's not that hard. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh, really? Yeah, you just fill out form one. <laughs> and I did, you know, in a cartoon where you're the double take, where you're like, I'm sorry, I can't, what? He's like, yeah, it's, for, it's called, you need to follow a form one application. It's literally form one. And, and, and I was like, I, I was just, I couldn't understand him. He's like, listen, you understand how government forms are all numbered? Uh-huh. This is SEC form number 001. <laughs> the application to establish a national securities exchange. It's a freaking form. And I was just like, you're kidding me. Now he's like, listen, it's 200 pages long. <laughs> and uh, the most important thing about the, I, I, we were talking about how I need to have a legal memo written to explain why I wanted to go talk to the SEC about it. He's like, when you go meet the SEC, the most important thing about your legal memo is, anyone want to guess? I was like, oh, the structure of my argument, uh, the precedent <laughs> that I can cite in the whatever. And I, I'm very earnest, good student, right? And he's like, no, it's whose letterhead it will be lit written on. What lawyer will write this letter for you? I was like, who cares? It's, it's on the American way. He's like, kid, listen. <laughs> There's only three lawyers who are really qualified for this. It needs to be on one of their letterhead. And I'm like, oh, man. And then I was like, wait, can I meet are these people I can meet? He's like, oh, sure, yeah, <laughs> I'll introduce you. You know, it was, just, it was like it, all these problems seem like totally intractable. And then, and this just has been almost 10 years now of like one foot in front of the other, one step, one little experiment. And so it's like, yeah, you fill out the form. It has a lot of parts. You have to hire a bunch of people. You have to raise a lot of money. You have to have the right lobbyists. You have to have the right lawyers. You have to learn all this jargon and this impenetrable whatever. You have to learn how Washington, D.C. actually works. Uh, but okay. It was like each step didn't seem that hard. And I was like, well, I'll just take this one step and see what happens. And I, and I was expecting for most of the first five years of this that I would take a few steps. I would eventually meet the one person. That I'd finally meet the man behind the curtain. And he'd be like, oh, kid, you made it behind the curtain. Let me now explain to you why this can never work. And it will leave you alone. And I could go back to my very nice life that I was having before. Because two moons would screw up gravity, first Right, of it's all. like really, it would yeah. cause the problem with the tides and people would die. And I mean, people act like, oh, my God, this thing. And it, so, but there's there's 15 exchanges in the world. Yeah. Um, but they're in the U.S. Yeah. In the U.S. Sorry. Yeah. And so, but most most things happen on a few exchanges, and most of the even yeah those... yeah it's a very misleading statistic because there are 15 exchanges. There are actually 15 medallions, as if they were taxi medallions. That's what they call them in D.C. Uh, there are 15 exchange medallions, but there are only five companies that operate stock exchanges in the U.S. And three of us only have one medallion each. So do the math. Why do two of the companies have 12 medallions? Between them, it turns out that they get, they get rents for the more medallions they have, and there are these committees that control the governance of our capital markets, and the more medallions you have, the more votes you get. Just like taxi medallions, right? <laughs> just saying. I'm just saying. So um, yeah, the vast majority, and the other, thing that's, the other change that we haven't talked about is in the last uh, 20 years, more and more trading has moved off the exchanges themselves. So the vast majority of trading now doesn't even happen on a stock exchange. It happens either in a dark pool or through what's called internalization, which is a great euphemism for you make a transaction and your broker never trades it with anybody. They just trade it themselves at what they consider to be the best price. So if you trade for free on a stock trading app or something and you don't pay any commissions, 
And you've ever wondered, like, how come I get to do this for free? Uh, they, this is not, I'm not revealing, I'm not breaking any news here. These are all in public filings. You can go read about uh, exactly every company that trades stocks. They have to disclose exactly where the stocks are traded. And they get paid to send their orders to this person and not to that person. So it's called payment for order flow. And it, it governs how all the transactions actually are, are running through, uh, through the exchanges. So the vast majority, not only of exchanges, but of financial institutions at all in this country, make their money through transactions and transaction fees and the associated rents that you can extract from transaction flow. So like transactions rule everything. And uh, in corporate listings, that's the process of taking your company and listing it on a stock exchange. There are only really two players. There's NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. They have 99.999% of the market. The only exception is BATS, which is one of the other exchanges which is listed on BATS. So all other companies, the companies you've all heard of are all listed at those two, two venues. And their rules of what the listing standards of how, the, how companies should be governed are almost indistinguishable rule sets. They're very, very, very similar. If they were here, they would say that one is better than the other, you understand. But fundamentally, if you talk to companies and you ask them, I did this for a lot of years, hey, how did you choose which exchange to list your company on? Want to guess the most common answer? The CEO always wanted to ring the bell on CNBC. Or we thought it would be cooler to have a party in Times Square, so we picked the other one. For a number of years, NASDAQ was running a promotion where you got free Facebook ad credits to use in the holiday season if you listed on NASDAQ. It's like the ultimate free toaster. <laughs> so this is, these are commodified businesses offering a commodity product with an incredibly strong duopoly, such a strong duopoly that it's suicide, of course, to attempt to crack this duopoly uh, uh, open. But I didn't know any better. So, so we just went ahead. So, so yeah, we, we built a team. We first raised money for the company in 2015. Um, we started the process of working with the SEC uh, in 2016. We got our Form 1 application approved last May. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. Uh, and we are America's newest stock exchange. And I know this is a little bit of a complicated question, of, but when, when do we get to see you on the market? Yeah. So we have acquired the world's most expensive taxi medallion, but we are not yet driving the car around. Do they send you a real thing? No, there's no, no you don't get a, I got a, I got a cooler, shinier membership card from you guys for doing this <laughs> than I got from the SEC. Um, you just get the psychic satisfaction of knowing that you're now subject to the, one of the most stringent regulatory regimes <laughs> that any business can be subject to. For good reason, because you get a grant of sovereign power from the United States federal government. You have to treat it very seriously, and we do. Um, we will be opening the exchange over the course of this year. I can't say exactly when, because it, it's not actually the kind of thing that you launch like on a certain day. There's a whole series of, of boot-up operations that happen. Uh, but we will start uh, trading, uh, trading stocks uh, no, no earlier than Q2 of this year and then we'll be open to be able to solicit companies to list on the exchange. Because another really funny quirk of stock exchanges is that all this time, the only question anyone really wants to know the answer to is who will list? Who will abide by these higher standards? Who will, who will be first to take the plunge to say, like, we will lead the industry into a brave new world of responsibility and long-term thinking? And technically speaking, I'm not allowed to solicit anybody to list on the exchange because it doesn't operate. So I have a, a large number of informational meetings <laughs> with these founders and CEOs and executives of this next generation of companies. 
And uh, so that the process of solicitation can begin later in the year, and you know it will take some time, obviously, because it's not like you just show up and you're like, "Hi, I think you should do your IPO on my exchange," and they'll be like, "Oh, great, let's do it next Tuesday." Uh, it takes it takes some time, so uh, so that, wanna, that should all happen. That should all begin. That process should all happen this year. Uh, I want to back up just a little bit because I do want to talk about. It. Like, I know that you can't talk about the companies that are that may list, but yeah. you can talk a little bit about the categories of them, sure, which sure. I do want to do. But I want to say, like, what is what is your innovation here? Like, what do you for what is like, have you turned off gravity and built a new moon? Yeah, and, yeah. And now, now now all the companies are interested in the long term. Like, what is what does a company have to do differently to list with you versus the yeah. Nasdaq or something like that? Yeah. So the big difference with us and the incumbent exchanges is we are principles driven, not rules driven. So what I've learned doing lean startup, especially, is like if you make anything a rule. Uh, like a check the box exercise. Companies are really good at checking boxes, and they will check. They will do whatever is needed to check the box if they think there's any advantage to them to do that. And since this is not really about checking the box, this is about the mindset and the incentives that drive the corporation. We had to do something a little bit more powerful. So, embedded in our listing standards are a set of principles that companies have to sign up to. But as soon as I say that, you're like, oh god, another pledge. Right, come on, admit it, you were thinking it. It's okay. There are all these pledges. Companies have been signing all these pledges lately. It's, we're in pledge season, practically. And, and they're all like, we're going to be multi-stakeholder. We're going to be this. We're going to be that. We're going to be really good. We're going to be good citizens. And if you ask, like, okay, but why should we believe that you will actually do the things that the pledge requires? It was actually, this is like a running joke, I think, in the TV show Silicon Valley, where the guy's like, no, you don't understand. There's, it has no binding commitment. It costs you nothing. Why aren't you not signing it? And the other guy's like, well, why? But then why should I sign it? He's like, but why shouldn't you sign it? And so, like, to, like if you can be, if you can be parodied in a TV show, like, maybe we could do better than that. So our idea is that for each principle, it's like, for example, that companies should be multi-stakeholder, that they should plot their time horizon in years and decades, not quarters, that they should incentivize their boards and their employees for the long term, uh, that they should treat their long-term investors like the citizens of the republic, different from the tourists. So for each principle, we require companies to create an operating policy that is... Um, responsive to that principle. And we actually in allow the them. Or? That it has to be an independently verifiable series of actions. Otherwise, we're a stock exchange. We can't enforce it. So yes, you have to make changes to your charter, to your bylaws. That you like, and this is like really in the weeds, but like the charter of the governance committee, what does it say? The charter of the comp committee, what does it say? And the acid test for me of one of these policies is like the true test of a corporation, of corporate governance to me is, God forbid, if it's discovered one day that your product is toxic or dangerous or unhealthy for your own customers or the societies and communities that they inhabit? Is there anybody in your corporation who has a fiduciary duty to care? Or are they more likely going to sweep it under the rug? Thank you, right? Yeah. Isn't it that simple? How many companies have failed that test in recent years? Look around, you know? So we have not done well on this score. Compare that to like when Johnson & Johnson had Tylenol be suspected of having poison in one of the Tylenol. Remember that story? It's now taught in business school. It's a case study of what to do. The voluntary nationwide recall in enduring incredible short-term pain for the unbelievable long-term game of winning the public's trust. So uh, we try to create structures in each company, and we also sell them software and services to help them abide by these, um, uh, by these policies. So listen, I'm not, this is not a nonprofit. I said that at the beginning. Uh, but our idea is that for each, pol each uh, principle, we can help them actually make structural changes, structural reforms that align the incentives of everybody in the corporation around a long-term multi-stakeholder view. And in order to list on our exchange, you have to uh, 
make a binding commitment to those principles by making public what your operating policy will be that is responsive to it. And then we enforce, this is the other critical thing, the reason we went through all the pain and difficulty of becoming a stock exchange is that to the, in our modern economy, corporations can pretty much only commit one crime, and that's securities fraud. There are no other crimes. Every other crime is adjudicated through securities fraud. If you notice this, like there's a bribery scandal, like what actually gets them, it's securities fraud. It's like Capone and the taxes. So the most important thing if you want a company to take something seriously is make sure that not doing it would cause them to commit securities fraud. So by forcing them to make these commitments public, by enforcing them through the listing standards of the exchange, there's actual real enforcement if they don't do it. And I don't think there's anything like that that exists today. So our view is it's like a genuinely new approach to corporate governance that is aligned with what this next generation of companies and their employees and their investors really want. That's really awesome. Look at that, what a great crowd. Right, wouldn't, Just, you, wouldn't you like your company to have that corporate governance model? Yeah, yeah, actually, how, tell by, your CEO. by a show of hands, how many of you are in the tech sector who work here? All right. Okay, it's everybody. For the podcast, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of people. Well, it's okay, a company who, how town. Many is not, how many of you are not in the tech sector? Oh, okay. There's oh, we've got a few. Like All right, good. I hope we've got right. at least one artist in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> We're at SF Jazz, for God's sake. Um, and so... What is the risk of a company? So, I mean, let's say if I'm, a, I'm two guys in a garage and I'm thinking about going public, or let's say I'm, I'm, I'm Amazon like, and I want to participate in this. Like, what, yeah. what do I need to do? Can I list on more than one exchange? Are there yeah. limits to that? Uh, why would I do one versus the other? Yeah, it, uh, so we do allow dual listing. This is very important. If you've always had the dream of one day taking your, uh, going to ring the bell at NYSE, God bless. Far be it for me to get in the way of that, okay? We don't even want to be what's called the primary exchange that does the open and closing auction every day of your stock because that's a huge subsidy that the exchanges get. Um, for those transactions, you have a monopoly. But we're happy to be the secondary exchange because we don't care about trading volume and we're not going to compete for trading volume and we refuse to play any of the high-frequency trading games and all that stuff that I was talking about before. Obviously, we put it right in the name of the company, so uh, we can't do that kind of stuff. So we just want to be the secondary exchange. We're very happy with that. And whether you're whether we're the primary, you list with us, or you dual list, you still get all the protections uh, and the substance of our listing standards and our technology. And if you think about that, everything you should be able to deduce now why that works from the discussion we had about how exchanges work at the beginning. Exchanges are just portals into a global pool of liquidity. So it doesn't actually matter where you're listed in terms of the amount of liquidity that you'll get. And this addresses the number one concern people have: is there a risk? Is it risky to do this? We have sanded off all the rough edges of this idea. There is literally no risk. We don't, there's no way for us to affect the trading and the liquidity. If you think about it, you're the CEO of a private company, you're going public, you feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to your employees, to your long-term investors, to your seed investors. And these days, they will have been your investors for like 14 years. Finally having them have liquidity, that's important to you. So we don't get in the way of any of that stuff. We don't get in the way of the banks and their fees, so we're not trying to reform how, uh, how IPOs or direct listings work. We support the company choosing whatever banks and whatever, whoever they want to pay fees to, you know, that God bless. So we take a extreme multi-stakeholder view ourselves. We try to make nice with everybody. We don't fight with the uh, entrenched powers. We try to uh, cooperate with them as much as possible because the great thing about this trading-obsessed financial system that we have, it's gonna sound funny, but actually one of its great strengths is that people just don't care what happens to companies. They're not immoral, they're not trying to destroy companies, they're amoral, they just don't care. So they don't wanna be part of corporate governance. 
They don't give a crap what companies actually do day to day. When I talk to quantitative traders, I actually did this, I had a conversation early on. I was sitting at lunch with a long only investor and a quantitative trader, we were at the same table. And they were talking to each other about who's more long-term and whatever, and the quantitative trader was explaining that his average holding period for his equity, they, they were trying to get it down to 10 minutes. It was like 12 minutes. They were working to get it down to 10. And the long-only investor said, that's funny, uh, we, haven't, we haven't done any transactions this year yet. And the guy was like, what, what do you do? He's like, well, we bought the companies we like, and we think they're doing well, and we haven't found any new companies that we want to buy, and we don't want to sell any of the companies we do have, so we're just doing nothing. He was like, you get paid for that? <laughs> So I'm sitting with a quantitative trader, and I was like, listen, just do me a favor, because he, he, was, he was reflexively opposed to long-termism, anything LTE, the whole long-term stock exchange, he just was like, well, I, this does not sound good to me. And I was like, let me ask the question a different way. Imagine for me, hypothetically, that someday in the future, you have engineered a synthetic short against a company, and today is the day when the stock price is down 10%. What does engineered at synthetic short mean? Yeah, I, I won't get into the trading. He's created a financial derivative where he profits if the stock price goes down. And he's actually arranged it so that the stock price will, in fact, go down. So it's not like he, wasn't, he didn't just guess lucky. He actually found a way to arrange the outcome where he will get paid for the thing that happens. If you, if you read like Matt Levine's Bloomberg column, you will learn of the, just like the hilarious lengths that people go to, including like entering into these like private equity type contracts with companies and then intentionally screwing up the company so that the company that you invested in will go down so that your other hedged position will go up. And I mean, it's- and, Enron was famous for this. I'm not saying anything about anybody who does this. As far <laughs> as I understand, it's all currently perfectly legal. Anyway, the look on his face when I said the stock was down 10% and he could imagine himself making it, he's like, this is great. Tell me more about this hypothetical. I'm very interested now. I was like, okay, do you realize that the next day, 10,000 managers who work at this company are running around like there's a crisis because they have to change the company's strategy? And the look on his face, he was like, why would they do that? It's like, because they all have short-term stock options. This stock has just gone down. The ticker has passed judgment on their strategy and it needs to be changed. He's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. When I short cattle futures, the cows don't care. <laughs> and I was like, right, okay, I can work with that. That wasn't my first reaction. But he doesn't care. He's like, look, I don't want to, so I was like, you're having a profound impact on the corporate governance of the companies you invest in. And he was just like, that doesn't make sense to me. These are just tickers on a screen to me, just symbols on a screen. I don't care what they do. I don't care what they make. I don't care anything. Nothing about the humanity of the people who were there registered for him. And he wasn't angry about it. He wasn't, mad. He wasn't trying to ruin these people's lives. He's amoral, not immoral. And that's true for all the, everyone who makes money from transaction volume. The truth is, if your company is destroyed but it generates a lot of transactions on the way down, they're fine. They might even prefer that because they could just get the next one. And we in the Valley, we who are in the, in the innovation hubs of the world, we provide the fresh meat that this system requires to keep going because it's destroying companies. The, comp the thing is shrinking. If it didn't have a steady, so even at the reduced rates of IPOs now, we still provide the only source of net new companies to prop this whole system up. In, in what they call equity capital markets, in investment banking, the jobs that used to be about rate, helping companies raise money and do transactions and M&A, that whole sector of banking is shrinking because there aren't enough transactions anymore for all the bankers that we have. So like the system is self-defeating unless we find a way to restore this balance and allow capital markets to be about, they used to call it capital formation. It's the euphemism for taking money from people who need something to invest in and giving it to entrepreneurs who have a good idea. 
for what to do. But that doesn't happen in our capital markets anymore. You know, it happens in, in totally different ways. So we have to restore that like primacy of purpose to our financial system that it ultimately is about creating value for customers, sharing the benefits and the rewards of that growth with the general public, with everybody who's truly the long-term stakeholder in society, uh, and then creating real alignment, solving the agency problem through creating true alignment between those long-term investors and the managers who are entrusted to run those companies. And so if, if I'm a, if, if a two-person company, garage idea yeah. right now, and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know what, at some point I want to take my company public. I really don't want to get caught up in this stupid quarterly thing, and I really, so I, what I have to do is I have to create some charter rules. Yeah, that's right. Um, that follow, and are, are your charter rules all up on your website, and you can look no. at them yet? <laughs> no, because we're so regulated. We have not gotten to that piece yet, so that is not yet available. The, the requirements of listing on the exchange are a matter of public record. They're in the Federal Register, so you can, you can go read about them. Obviously, that we have that on our website. And I actually have, um, uh, I, I literally had a 52-card deck, deck of cards printed with all of the different long-term oriented corporate governance ideas. I I'm like a collector of these obscure corporate governance ideas. Because, because we're not prescriptive, we're not one size fits all. I'm not legally supposed to come in and tell you, hey, you should really do X, Y, Z. So I now have a collection of things that you might consider doing. And when I sit down with founders, we literally take the deck of cards out. I should have brought it up stage and I can show you. Uh, and we talk about which of these things might make sense for your stage, your industry, your situation. And eventually, I hope we'll be able to build that into a program where startups at different stages can, um, uh, can adopt these things. We actually, on the software side, we run the world's largest, I think, corporate governance platform for startups. So if any of you are early stage companies and you want, you know, we do cap table management and foreign A valuations and diversity and inclusion and runway planning and all kinds of concrete specific software. Oh, I shouldn't have said, shoot, I'm alive. You can't sell corporate governance software to startups. Did you notice that? No, startups don't buy corporate governance software. They don't, corporate governance is like an old fashioned word that nobody here cares about. So we don't call it that, so sorry. Uh, we go to market under discrete brand names for each of the products that we make. But people who are members of that platform will get first access when we start to roll out the more um, um, long-term charter stuff that we're talking about and now. So if, and so if I'm not a two-person company, if I'm Amazon, and I yeah. was like, you know what? I, from the beginning, we said we were about long-term. Yeah. We want to also list on this. They need to change some of their corporate governance and bylaws, yeah. and then they can apply and they can join, That's and right. then people can buy and sell on your exchange instead of another one. Yeah, well, it actually doesn't matter where the stock is traded. You actually That's list with us, part. but yeah, uh, the rights and responsibilities fall, they emanate from the charter, and they follow the security wherever it's transacted. So if you, for example, if you're an LTSE-listed company, one of the technical solutions that we provide is we allow uh, companies to identify in real time who their long-term investors actually are, this is a shocking problem to me that most corporate boards, they don't actually know who owns the company, so they don't know who to talk to, who to listen to. Um, it's, it's kind of a wild situation. They literally pay for a service that's called stock surveillance. One of my favorite financial euphemisms, it's like you're hiring the CIA to find out who owns your own company. <laughs> you know, and you try to like, imagine running a private company that way. You didn't know who your investors are, you don't know what they want, it's very difficult. So, um, so we allow them to find out in real time, and then we have a system that allows them to give rewards, proportional rewards to folks who are long-term holders versus short-term. And part of the power of a system like that is it's available to anyone. So once you list with us, you can register as a long-term investor through an existing SEC-regulated disclosure system, whether you're an individual investor and you bought one share of stock, whether you're a big institutional passive fund, active fund, you know, who are, any kind of fund, everyone gets the same treatment, the same ability to register as a long-term investor, to reveal themselves and their preferences to the corporation. And that allows us to solve the problem of the synthetic short I was talking about a second ago. 
One of my dreams is one day we will have our own stock ticker for the whole markets, and it will just be the same number going by over and over again. <laughs> because most days, nothing happens. The market is not a thousand whatever, a thousand points less valuable today than it was yesterday. Nothing happened today. And like there's a whole industry of people trying to guess what it was. Was it the virus? Was it this? Was it the election? But like most of the things that supposedly happened caused the stock exchange to drop today also happened last week and didn't cause it to drop. So it's like what, is, what causes what? Not, like the fundamental value of companies very rarely changes on a dime. So what we need to do is take that mindset of fundamental value and make it available to more and more companies so that the investors who then care about that can be part of the growth of that company. And there, but there's no like tripwires in the system for high volume, fast trading or anything like that. You can st do you have to trade faster or slower than you do on other exchanges? No, our, our particular trading platform is not especially conducive to high frequency trading, but we don't ban it. We don't, we don't ban shorts. We don't ban any of that stuff. Like, like this is the, the other kind of dirty secret of the financial system is that long-term investors themselves don't want any restrictions on short-term trading because they believe that's the source of liquidity and they're going to need it. Now, the like, family offices and the really long-term people, the pension plans, the sovereign funds, people who invest on multi-generational time trades, a lot of those people will tell you, you know what, this is all fake liquidity anyway. In a crisis, it all dries up. None of those people will be there for you. So it's like liquidity right when you don't need it. But that's a but that's a very minority view. Still, the long the, the majority view of long term investors is that it's stuff like is ins beneficial. Insurance after after Katrina, like it didn't exist. Yeah, right yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to get into some questions, and if you awesome. have them, please um, send them down. Um, but um, since Kevin Kelly was sorting the questions, he gets the first one. It looks Thank like. Thank you, Kevin, for doing. Um, that. <laughs> um, and this gets a bit to the, the the question I asked about. I know that you can't say names of companies that are that may be interested in your yeah. informational meetings. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but um, but kind of what scale of companies are interested, and um, and have you have you had to turn any away at this point? Oh, that is a really tricky question because legally speaking, a stock exchange cannot turn anyone away who meets the requirements. So we have to be fair. When we're operational, we will not be able to turn anybody away. But since I'm just having informational meetings, I get to choose who to have informational meetings with. And I, we do extensive investigation of the companies that reach out to us and that want to meet to find out what they're all about and whether they in fact embody the kind of values that we care about. And I will not say that every company we have met has lived up to that test. Um, I, will, I could... There's a lot of bad stuff happening, even in the valley. Uh, and um, you know, when we encounter that stuff, we steer clear. The size of companies tends to be not that different from what you would think of who's going public. Like eventually, our hope is that we can eventually return the markets to sanity, have companies go public earlier, have that not be such a death sentence, have the public be have more access to growth companies. I'm like, we want the public to be able to take risks again. Because we all understand risk is correlated with reward. And if we want to have people like save for retirement, they ought to be able to have a portfolio of bets that has some risk in it. Um, so that will eventually happen. But in the short term, that, those effects are a while, a while off. So almost everyone we're talking to is either already a public company or on any of the lists of like, future IPOs that you would look at uh, in the financial press. And in terms of the archetypes of the different kinds of companies, this is the other really interesting part. The, the motivation is really different at like $10 billion of market cap, $1 billion, and then like um, non-Silicon Valley companies. So these are, every company we're talking to, every single one, in any other era in history would already be public. So this, we're in a strange time. You know, a $750 million company is considered small. 
for the public markets now. That's odd. Um, so for companies that are like, you know, Silicon Valley companies, you know, really in the tech space, have like very, like the really high market cap, for them, this is an opportunity to advance their mission through other means. Because they have a real change the world ethos. To them, that's not a cliche, it's not a joke, they take it seriously. And the really enlightened of those founders are like, how can I use my IPO? How can I use this financial transaction to help move the whole financial system in the direction that I think it should go? So the really enlightened, long-term oriented founders, you can kind of guess who I'm talking about. Um, they see, they have that vision to say like, I, I don't want to just run a company, I want to be part of the solution to these widespread systemic problems. So for them, it's an exercise in trying to figure out like, is this, are these values aligned with my values? Will this support me in being able to have the impact that they want? It's like an amplifier of what they want to do. Then you have kind of more ordinary Silicon Valley tech companies that are not the super high flying, like biggest, they're a little bit more risk averse because for them, their IPO is a big deal. They really want to get it right. There's a lot of like feeling that, oh, this is risky or scary. But on the other hand, as you get smaller in market cap, the power of, of hedge funds and activists, like is that the AUM of those funds is going up. And so as you the, uh, the, the amount of money they have assets under management, so the size of a, of a hedge fund, the bigger it gets, the smaller of a target, the smaller you are, the more ballast they have, the more weight they have, the more momentum they have to cause problems for you. So for them, there's kind of risks on both sides. It's like, wait a minute, I'm worried about my IPO, I want it to go well. But on the other hand, if I don't do this, will I face any protection at all from these forces? The bigger, com the bigger companies are buffered by their sheer size. The smaller companies are really, uh, really at risk. And then you have the truly normal companies. And it's funny, like there's one company in, in Wisconsin that, that we work closely with, there's one in Salt Lake City, there's one in, in Texas. These are not Silicon Valley household names. But they're technology-driven companies, they're growth companies. Again, in any other era, they would be public and pillars of their community. And for them, this is more of a life or death problem. Their own bankers are telling them, you really can't go public. You know, one of the companies we work with is in the healthcare space, and they, are gonna, they have this mission to, I won't say too much about it, but they really, like, they genuinely want to save the world. Uh, over the course of the next several decades. And they have a lot of physical plant that they have to build. So we're talking about like extremely capital intensive physical things that have to get made. You know, the kinds of things that capital markets were built to finance. And they're being told you can't go public because you don't have the governance protections that will prevent Wall Street from preventing you from making these investments. They'll just want to cash this out as soon as possible. Just think about that. It's well, so like, therefore they're like, well, we've got to raise private capital, but they, they can't just call the vision fund you know, they're, they're in, in actual real America doing a normal business. <laughs> so, like, they don't have, you know, petrostate sovereign wealth funds killing each other to get into those companies. So then it's like, well, then they have to raise the money from private equity. That comes with its own trade-offs. And so there's literally no solution to them doing what you would want to do. And again, just, I want us all to really, like, marinate in how ridiculous this is. All of us would want this company in our portfolio if I could say its name and you knew what it did. And look, it's a high-risk, high-reward business. It may not work. It may work. It may not work. But, like, Looks pretty good to me. They, you know, they've done the test things and then they've done the next size up and they've done the next size up and they're on the right track. There's like real physics and science involved in this innovation. It's not just an app. Uh, and it's, it's difficult to finance because of, nothing wrong with apps. Listen, it's fine. <laughs> this is the real thing. And so like, what's the solution? What are we supposed to do? 
Um, so that for they are actually the, the most hardcore of our early adopters, the most evangelical um, are the folks for whom that, that really is the only option. And is this going to be better for all of these employees here in the room? I mean, we're living in an era where employees now banding together at large companies are actually starting to clearly influence policy towards, absolutely, absolutely. towards environmental directions or, um, or other directions. Is, why, will employees like this better? I think so. I mean, listen, we, we often get calls from founders because they're like, this comes up in our all-hands meeting. People will say, because like, like most founders, most companies here, like one of the corporate values they have is long-termism. I mean, and so you start telling your employees you want them to think long-term, and people start to be like, well, well why are we doing the long-term thing? And then the, in the all-hands meeting, they're like, I don't know what that is. And then they're like, I better find out what that is because my employees are not too happy. So, so do ask at the all-hands meeting. It's very helpful. <laughs> um, and I think, I think it is very helpful. First of all, there's two ways that, that this is important for employees. First of all, the rise of employee activism is not like a passing trend. This is going to get way, way, way bigger because corporations are now dominated by knowledge work and intangible assets, which means the relative power of employees over the corporation is just it's unparalleled in history. I mean, a lot of companies we're talking about, such Silicon Valley companies, have no physical plant. They have absolutely no physical assets whatsoever. Uh, all of the value of the company is contained in the heads of the people that work there. And, you know, we joked about the creativity dampening field and all that, but, like, the people's creativity, motivation, sense of purpose uh, is, like, one of the primary assets that the company has. And so anything that damages that is really uh, problematic. And so everyone's grappling with, like, how do we be a purpose-driven company? And they're starting to get these questions. If we're so purpose-driven, how come we sell products to so-and-so to do that bad thing? And why, why, why do we allow these things? They're being asked, like, genuinely hard questions that I think other generations of business leaders wouldn't have faced. Uh, so that's like a new, new and powerful thing. And so I think if you're in that kind of company, um, what we hear from employees is the same thing I was talking about with the public. I want the company to make a binding promise to do this. The company says, we won't do this bad thing. We won't sacrifice the short term. We won't pollute the environment because it's short term, it's in our short term interest. We won't poison our own customers because that would be self-defeating. And employees sit there and they go, yeah, well, you're saying that. But are you going to have that job forever? Probably not. Well, what about your successor? Will your successor also have that same commitment and make that same promise? And they're like, oh, I'm sure he will. It's always he in these situations. <laughs> I'm sure he will. It's like, well, why, why would he? They're like, well, he's going to have these great short-term stock options. And he's going to be accountable to this board of directors who also has short-term stock options and doesn't especially care about anything but returning money to shareholders. But he'll have the strength of character, I have no doubt. To stand up to that. It's just like, what kind of promise is that? And then like, yeah, is it in the charter? Is it in the bylaws? Like one of my favorite, in my deck of cards, one of my favorite cards is um, directors have tremendous latitude under what's called the Delaware business judgment rule, the most companies incorporated in Delaware, to pursue anything that they think is in the company's long-term interest. They're supposed to have, they have a fiduciary duty to shareholders, but they get to decide uh, what serves shareholders best and over what time horizon. So they can choose to say, you know what, we're going to focus on what's in the long-term interest of the company or not. It's their choice. So why not have boards of directors sign a pledge to support the mission of the company? That's like three sentences in the charter somewhere. It's not a big deal. One of the easiest things you could possibly do. And when you, you say that to any employee, they're like, well, yeah, duh, of course we should have that. But like, go ask your GC if you have that. No one has it. Almost no companies have anything remotely like that. It's extremely rare. And then you have these, read these books about founders and their histories, like a common complaint. Like founders will be on their deathbed being like, my one regret in life is I forgot to do that. 
I should have made sure that people on my board actually supported the mission of the company and I got kicked out in a boardroom coup because they didn't care. Because, because, because. So like there's these simple, small things that we can do that can make a big difference. The other reason this is beneficial for employees is employees are one of the critical stakeholders of most companies. So like even companies that don't subscribe to the multi-stakeholder theory of governance, um, like I've, I met with a lot of founders, I was with a founder the other day, and I was like, I'll, you should have a stakeholder committee of the board, you should care about stakeholders. He's like, that's stupid. Stakeholders is dumb. I was like, okay, how do you feel about your employees? It's like, I would do anything for my employees. It's like, you'd make significant investments in their well-being? Oh, yes, anything they need. I, 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 like, you'd be willing to commit to that in the future? Oh, for sure. You'd be willing to have a board committee that oversees that commitment? O obviously. It's like, well, how about a human capital investment committee? It's like, definitely, that, I want that. So, you know, sometimes we call it one thing or another. But like, again, does a company have any commitment to the well-being of its employees? Is it written down anywhere? Are we anything more than just an a expense to be commodified at the first opportunity and replaced by robots? Most companies, I think that's the plan. So you should check if they wrote down something different <laughs> on the secret plan. Worth bringing up at your all-hands meetings. I'm um, just saying. Listen, I'm just saying. Thank you. Um, so I realize we're, we're, we're getting close to time here, but I do want to get some more of these. These questions are awesome. Uh, so um, Adam Menges um, asks, can I invest? I assume he's meaning in you. In LTSE. In the long-term stock exchange. Yes. <laughs> no, we're not currently raising money. Um, we, we raised a large amount, even by modern standards, uh, for a company with no revenue. So I'll just tell you one quick joke. Um, when I first was writing about Lean Startup, and I, I used to tell this story, one of the first startups I joined in Silicon Valley, uh, and the punchline of the joke is that the company raised $50 million with no customers and no revenue. Um, and then that's like, and people used to laugh. It's like, oh, we know how that's going to go. And now I can't tell the joke anymore because I like, people are like, was that the seed round? <laughs> or what? It's like, it's not even considered a lot of money anymore. So yeah, things have, things have gotten a little, little, little difficult. But we're, we're, we're pretty good at LTSE. But thank you for asking. Well, and can an exchange be a public company? They, they must. They must. Eventually, yeah. yeah, yeah we, will, so we will go we will we'll look forward your... to listing on, uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. Just kidding. We will obviously be <laughs> listing. Uh, we will list, list on ourselves when that becomes appropriate. Yeah. And does anything protect, uh, Joshua asks, um, does anything protect investors from fraud on your exchange that's different than other exchanges? Same, same as any other exchange. I mean, companies are still required to report quarterly. They still um, have, are subject to gap reconciliation. Those are SEC and congressional rules that we don't have the power to change yet. And um, we do require additional disclosures on top of what other exchanges require. So to whatever extent disclosure protects investors from fraud, if more disclosure is better, then our exchange is better on that basis. And are there any other like different technologies or ways of investing, things like using um, you know, some of these new ledger technologies, yeah, crypto, yeah, yeah. that you guys looked at um, are even allowed to do, or does it all have to be on the very normal, oh, very man. regulated oh, man. thing? Highly regulated financial systems are like so many years behind. So we are the very first cloud-native exchange. So for the engineers in the audience, we built the entire thing on GCP, and we tried to get What's the GCP? Uh, Google Compute, Compute uh, Cloud. So, so basically just on the Google Cloud versus the Amazon Cloud. But the cloud vendors themselves are not quite ready for those products to be subject to the level of regulatory scrutiny that exchanges require. And the SEC is not quite ready to grant them that permission. So um, although we are cloud native and therefore have a dramatically better cost structure than the incumbents, we still run a tiny bit of the software in that data center in New Jersey, just like everybody else. But just the very minimum that is required for regulatory purposes. 
And the very second the uh, SEC is prepared for an all-cloud exchange, we will do that. By the way, for those engineers in the room, we will be able to then move from a physical-defined network to a software-defined network and completely get rid of latency arbitrage once and for all. We can synchronize the, yeah, thank you. That's right, that's what I'm talking about. I, got, I definitely got some engineers in the room. <laughs> and not only synchronize at the level of the millisecond when information is delivered, but at the level of the individual CPU clock step so everyone's algorithm would run at the exact same moment at the exact same speed. So that is coming, but that's still a few years away. And given that cloud is still considered radical, you understand that there's no drones or Bitcoin or anything. <laughs> baby steps, baby steps. Um, and can you, st you've listed a few of these, but I think, what would be the biggest upside? Like, what is the biggest reason someone would list with your exchange? You can win the public's trust by making promises they can believe. That's it. And uh, Catherine Fulton from our board, I think this is a great one to, um, to actually wrap up with. All right. Um, asks, fundamentally, if, if you are successful and this whole thing is working, um, how is the world going to be different 10 years from now? I love the optimism that there'll be any discernible difference in only 10 years. That's awesome. Let's say 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't know. I, the investment thesis for this, raising money for this, is really interesting because I can tell you what will happen, but I simply can't tell you when. Right, like right now, we are on track to open the exchange soon. We'll be able to solicit companies. We have some people that are even in the near term, maybe next year, you know, will go public on the exchange. But like, there's this concept called the IPO window. Some of you will know like the idea that capital markets are like open for IPOs for certain amounts of time and then they close. So like we're like one catastrophically bad tweet away from the markets crashing any day, right? So you wake up in the morning, you don't know what's gonna be. So like, we have to be prepared for the possibility that this happens right away and the movement is catalyzed and we get going or that we live through a long winter uh, before we can make the change happen. But, so I don't know when, I just don't know when, but here's what I can say, here's, here's my hope. It's not even really about LTSC and our reforms. Of course, I believe that companies, this next generation of companies deserve to have a governance model that really aligns incentives and interests, that employees deserve to work in, under humane working conditions where they can believe the promises that their own companies make to them, let alone the, the promises that they have to represent to customers. Um, I believe that the investors, the long-term investors, the pension funds, the people who are investing for retirement, the people who represent the economic interests of ordinary people, they should be able to participate in growth companies. So like, I believe all that is good and can happen. But that's not really what's at stake here to me. So just let me kind of think bigger for a second. My hope is that this become, if this works, it will inspire other people to reinvent the rest of our civic fabric. The institutions that govern our lives in democratic countries have been decaying and are practically decrepit, um, partially from misuse, but partially from people actively hacking away at the foundations. And then being like, hey, we could use that for firewood, and look, nothing fell over today, so I guess it was fine. And I don't think this is like too controversial anymore. Like, look around. We, are not, we do not have the institutions that are fit to purpose for the 21st century, but we also can't go back. Our grandparents worked out a lot of these solutions the hard way, and I, just, I pray that we don't have to go through what they went through to build the next set of these institutions, partly because we have the lessons that we could learn from the sacrifices that they made, but also we can't just copy-paste what they did because the world has actually changed a lot in three generations. So we have to build new civic infrastructure, new, you know, uh, I was talking to Stuart about maintenance, new maintainable institutions that make sense 
for the 21st century. It's not just bridges and dams whose infrastructure has decayed, but every aspect of our civil society. And I'm talking about schools and hospitals and newspapers and political parties and government agencies and you know, defense departments and everything has to be reinvented. And the lesson I think of the last 10 years especially is that if we allow technology to just disrupt things and just trust that the market will sort it out, we will, like things will be disrupted and they will be replaced with things that are new, but we may not like the consequences of that change because if we don't have entrepreneurs with the vision, not just to build a commercially viable product or a useful piece of technology, but they don't have the vision to say there are civic values at stake and they need to be baked into the fabric of what I'm building from the beginning, if we don't make those choices consciously, we will get the results that we deserve unconsciously. So my hope is that LTSE is successful in its own right, but more importantly, that it will inspire many people who are listening and watching right now to say, wait a minute, if it's just a form, what's my version of just a form, right? Like, why do we have to send kids to school where everybody learns the same thing at the same time every day? Is that necessary? Why do we have to build hospitals? Why, why do we have to build political parties this way? Why do we have to do journalism? Like, everything that matters, um, that governs our, uh, our liberal democracies, um, to take a fresh look and say, is there a humane, scientific, you know, customer-centric, 21st century version of that available? And so I hope, you know, if this works, uh, it will inspire many copycats. Thank you all very much. Thank, Thank you. you. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this seminar, you might enjoy other talks in this series, and also check out Long Now's other podcast about long-term thinking, Conversations at the Interval. Thank you for listening.